Well, thank you, Jean, for that um, very generous introduction. Um, and very nice to, to see you all here this evening. Um, I'm particularly grateful to Jean for this opportunity uh, to allow me to talk about this project that I've been working on for the last six years um, and which is finally about to see uh, the light of day with the launch of the big anthology um, by the Governor-General um, at the end of this month. Um, the book is completely embargoed, which is why there are no copies here, um, but I brought along the banner over there, which just gives you a sense of how, how thick <laughs> the book is. Now, um, you might, it might seem strange that um, under the heading of the Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation, um, I want to talk about an anthology of Australian literature. But I hope by the end of this talk you'll understand why um, I, I believe that connection is, is appropriate um, and indeed important. Um, when I was um, the president of Sydney Penn back in 2003, um, I was having lunch with someone else on the committee, um, Mary Kinane, who is a publisher from New York, uh, working for Norton for 20 years, who had recently relocated to Australia. And we're talking about various Australian writers, and she said to me she'd like to read some of these things. Where's the Norton? Which was her way of saying, where is there an anthology of Australian literature that is readily available? And of course, there wasn't a Norton. There wasn't anything. And this was at a time when a lot of Australian literary works were out of print. Um, they still are, by and large and in which there was a recognition that the teaching of Australian literature in universities um, was shrinking and also in schools. Um, and even since I've been working on the project, I've found often when I say to people I'm working on this book of Australian literature, there's a kind of despondence um, in people's responses, if not hostility. Um, even last Saturday night I was talking to a, a very senior arts journalist who I won't name and she said to me, well, do you think we have to feel any attachment to Australian literature? And my sense of this is that there's something wrong um, with a culture where there isn't some um, at least interest in our own creative productions. Um, or indeed pride in them. Now, that can only come from knowledge of them. So availability um, is really the first issue. Um, I think it's different to some extent in the other art forms, but for some reason, um, Australian literature has... Something has gone wrong with it. And I mean, I have elaborate explanations for what that is, which I won't um, bore you with now. But thinking positively, it's there to be reconfigured and revived. And that's really what this project is about. And it's not a coincidence that it started with Penn. Penn is a world organisation of writers. And Penn 
in Australia, it, it started here in 1931. It has a long history, and people like Patrick White and Judith Wright and so on have been members of it. Um, but that it was the writers themselves who were concerned that their literature um, was not as visible as it should be. Um, so it wasn't academics. Um, it wasn't publishers, it was writers from Penn who in initiated this project. Um, part of Penn's mission is freedom to read and freedom to write around the world. But that includes the access to the literary heritage of communities wherever they are. And strange to say, there was a feeling that the literary heritage of Australians was becoming unavailable to Australians, um, not to mention the rest of the world. So that was the start of this. Um, and having heard my, um, some of my biography from Jean, you'll probably find it even stranger that I have ended up as the general editor of this project because I'm not um, trained as a scholar in Australian literature. Um, if I'm known, it's probably more as an old China hand than anything else. Um, but it was in fact precisely back in 1986 um, when I was in China. Um, I taught at universities in Beijing and in Shanghai um, before I became, uh, worked at the Australian Embassy. And what I was teaching there was Australian literature. The only time I've actually ever taught Australian literature was to those students in Beijing and Shanghai. And so I kind of began seeing it from the outside, which was very valuable because it, it made me value it in certain ways, but it certainly made me see it differently. And I think some of that, um, that sort of cosmopolitan sense of Australian literature um, has, has fed into this project. Now, it's not that Australians don't care about their literature. Um, this is the paradox. I mean, you will have been following the heated debate about um, the territorial copyright um, and possible changes to it. You may have seen Richard Flanagan or Tim Winton on television recently um, taking very strong positions on this. Um, Richard Flanagan said, what nation can advance with its tongue torn out? A uh, very graphic way of putting it, but I mean, he's, he's right, actually. Um, there's also a lot of community concern about the teaching, not only of Australian literature, but of literature generally in schools, in secondary schools. There's a lot of concern about literacy in Australia, and our liter literacy rates are nowhere near as high um, as they should be. So there's community concern about all of this, um, but also something that was going wrong. So in a very ambitious way, um, with this project, um, we want to make an intervention into Australian cultural life and try to change that, um, even if just a little bit. Trying to put all this together turned into quite a complex and mammoth task, and that's before we even got to the editing stage. The kind of 
money involved was very substantial. And in our society at the moment, um, it's not easy to get money for the arts always. Um, or at least it was necessary to put together a partnership. And this is something that I actually um, write about in my introduction to this book on contemporary art and philanthropy. Um, much of the discussion there is about the need for partnerships between different parts of the community to make our cultural life rich and dynamic. In the case of this book, it began with Penn, so Penn is named in the title. Alan and Unwin came in very early as the publisher, and our particular publish, publisher there, Elizabeth Weiss, has just been phenomenal throughout the six-year period and still is phenomenal. We needed a university partner, Macquarie, to provide office for research and other um, activities. And we were fortunate to secure a large research grant from the Australian Research Council to go towards the project. And we were also fortunate to um, receive substantial funding from the Australia Council to pay for the permissions fees for the living authors. That alone came to $350,000. But none of those people would have jumped in if it hadn't been for the philanthropic foundations who were actually in there first, um, the Meyer Foundation and the Nelson Mears Foundation particularly. So it's been a partnership of all those people, very complex to put together, extraordinary contractual documents, but it happened and now there's not only the book, um, but there's um, a teaching guide, um, which is in the form of a DVD, but it's also free online. Um, and there are, there, there are filmed interviews with quite a few of the writers and other people involved. Um, as a spin-off from the main anthology, we began last year publishing this Macquarie pen anthology of Aboriginal literature. Um, the first time there has been an anthology like this, historically organised, edited by Anita Heiss and Peter Minter, who were the two Indigenous editors in the team. Um, and they won a deadly award um, last year for their contribution to literature for this book. Um, it was Anita's idea to have the Michael Riley image on the cover, um, which is you know, has a stunning simplicity and eloquence and says exactly what we want to say about the meeting of the traditional and the contemporary, reconfiguring um, traditions for the present. Um, all of this material, slightly differently configured, then appears again in the main anthology where we see dialogue between these Aboriginal texts and the rest of Australian writing. Um, so we'll move on. There's Anita and Peter at the launch last year of that first volume. And there's the, the main volume with again Michael Riley image 
on the cover, a feather appropriate to pen floating there. Um, I've forgotten, I must find out what feather it is. It is a, it's a feather of a sea eagle, maybe, um, of a, or a black cockatoo, um, an Australian bird. And now, this is coming because Norton, um, the original model, have decided to publish the book internationally as a Norton anthology um, under that slightly different title, The Literature of Australia. Um, and they've, this is a draft cover because my name's spelt wrongly, if anyone has noticed that, but they've corrected it. Um, this, is, this is great news for us because this becomes a textbook and um, we, Norton have said that their anthologies create courses around the world, so we hope that will happen with this. One of the great limiting factors for the teaching of Australian literature outside the country is that there just have not been texts available. Um, for my course in Harvard, I've, I've ordered the books, um, but I'm limited to books that are in print in North America. So to have this 1,500 pages as a readily available edition, edition um, is, um, is a great boon. One of the reasons Norton have done this is that the founder of Norton, it's a, it's a family company, it still is an independent company, um, first visited Australia in 1916, Mr Norton, with his wife, and when he became a publisher in 1924, he was very keen to develop an Australian list, and he corresponded with Australian writers um, such as um, Vance and Nettie Palmer, um, Catherine Susanna Pritchard, Henry Handel Richardson, um, and published them. And he wrote to Nettie Palmer that he had grown to love Australia and hoped that Australian authors would take their place in the world. That was in 1924 or something, but it's taken a while, but um, this is happening. Now, what is Australian literature? Just let me talk about that briefly. Um, I think the first thing to say is that it is a distinctive literature because of its distinctive circumstances, the way it came into being. From the very first people here to write in English, groping for language to describe their experience of this different environment, this society without precedent, writing home um, in a whole range of moods, um, documenting but also imagining this place. At the same time, that English um, became the language of the colonised Aboriginal people who also had to use it for their negotiation and struggle. So in the anthology, the first piece, in the big anthology dating from 1788, is a letter from um, ship surgeon George Worgan, home to his brother in England, saying, oh, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, basically. And the second piece is a letter from Benelong um, to one of his patrons in London. So from the start, there's a dialogue. But also this language is being reformed in this writing through these elements of displacement, transference and politics. 
new language for new conditions, even to extremes, when existing literary forms break down, boundaries are crossed, and new forms come into being. For this reason, a lot of the most powerful Australian writing is not found in conventional literary forms, in poems, in novels, in plays, but it's found in journals, in essays, in memoirs, in letters, in polemic, writing that makes the pulse race or the hair stand on end, makes you laugh, makes you cry, and moves you with its significance. And just one small example of that, um, Anna Morgan in 1934, under the black flag, um, an Aboriginal activist of the time. When a white man is charged with a crime, he is taken to court and judged. If innocent, he is allowed to go home to his family and there the matter ends. A black man is expelled from the mission, the land reserved for him and his people and can never go back to his own people again. Perhaps the family, unwilling to be separated from him, shares his exile until it pleased the mighty protectors of the Aborigines or their managers to give them a gracious pardon and allow them to return home again. My husband and I have been expelled for all time. And it's that last phrase, particularly that image of expulsion, that gives that that, that power that makes it literature. So we define literature broadly in this anthology and we define Australian as flexibly as possible to include work by anyone born in Australia, living in Australia even for a short period or writing about Australia. We juxtapose writers who give voice to different possibilities of being Australian over time, um, including being un-Australian at certain times. Indigenous writing and overlapping it, the writing of the last half century in particular, gets special attention in this book. Because ironically, it seems to be the near past that is heading for oblivion most swiftly. It's ordered chronologically from 1788 through to 2006, a cutoff, so that the larger patterns of Australian history, including generational change and the impact of successive movements of people can be read through the literary works selected. We had a team of editors um, who are are experts. This is the website where there's a lot of information if you're interested. Um, I just want to scroll through there so you can see the faces of the other editors. Karen Goldsworthy did fiction and drama from 1950. Anita Heiss uh, was one of the Indigenous editors. David McCooey did poetry and non-fiction from 1950. Peter Minter is the other Indigenous editor. Nicole Moore did 1900 to 1950, and Elizabeth Webby did um, from 1788 to 1900. Um, 
The total is 600,000 words, which, about which we consulted not only with ourselves but with a large team of national and international advisers and educational um, educationists. Um, I think maybe some of those advisers are here tonight. The pointy end of all of that is that there is a process of inclusion and exclusion which is inevitable. Um, but that wasn't our um, <coughs> primary emphasis to create a canon. It was more to indicate the contours, um, to offer many stories rather than one. There was some resistance to the project along the way. Um, and the main resistance was about exactly that, that what we were doing um, was to prescribe a canon and that we would do so in a conservatively nationalistic way with a simplified, even coercive construction of Australian identity that would be forced down people's throats. Um, Australians are rightly anxious about that. Um, hostile to hierarchy and ordering in some respects. But in my view, that kind of resistance becomes self-defeating when it becomes a reason for doing nothing. When it gets in the way of examining the whole corpus of Australian literature and finding new ways to think about it. The other objection was that a book was no longer the way to go, that it could all be online. And this, wouldn't, this would then remove the problem of inclusion and exclusion because you could just have an infinitely expandable um, collection of, um, of writings. Some of this infinity is being realised now in databases and digital resources, and there are some wonderful things. Um, if you're interested in Australian literature, the Austlit database is incredible. But it has no actual literature on it. It's all biographical information and bibliographical information. If you want the literature, online isn't as attractive because of the question of access again. For material in copyright, and the great bulk of Australian writing is still in copyright, um, you have to pay for it. And that's why a book um, is a more realistic option than um, an endless online production. Um, I also think that for people who are new to this area, and I'm thinking here of students, um, particularly at secondary level, um, a book offers something more manageable. If things are well presented in that way, um, it, it's more appealing. Um, <coughs> But those are the, some of the reasons why an anthology like this is um, a, a fairly rare event. The Norton editor in New York um, described it as a book of one of the great bodies of literature in the English language. And that phrase jumped out at me because it's not really how we talk about Australian literature as a body of literature. Um, this is a metaphor that goes back at least to the 18th century, the idea of a corpus of texts, a body. Um, 
And there's a lot of language of the body that even surrounds books. We speak of the body of a book. Um, we speak of writing that embodies. In some ways, literature is quite corporeal. As, oops, as this author, John Sutherland, recognises in a recent book called um, Curiosities of Literature, there's the body of literature sort of feeding on itself. But in the case of Australian literature, this seems even more interesting, this idea of the body of literature, because in some ways we are a country of the missing body. And maybe the body of our literature has gone missing, not a corpus, but a corpse. What do I mean by body of literature? It's different from just an accumulation of writing. It's a set of texts that have been read and reread over time, debated, digested, reacted against by all sorts of different people for all sorts of different purposes, passed around, handed on, and like the magic pudding, keeps on reproducing itself. Within that body, the relations between the parts, like in a human body, um, are mutually animating. The nerve endings connect through different works of literature and externally to culture, society, history, helping us understand how that changing body of Australian literature is a dimension of the changing body of this country in all its potential and contested formation. The missing body, it's quite a familiar trope in Australian culture once you look for it. There's the famous McCubbin painting of a bush burial. Is the body there in that hole? Who knows? Um, they're standing looking at something, but in some ways it's a void that they're looking into. The 19th century poet Adam Lindsay Gordon um, wrote a famous ballad called The Sick Stock Rider, where the narrator names the places where all his mates have died out in the bush um, as he reflects on his own coming disappearance to an unmarked grave. I should live the same life over if I had to live again, and the chances are I go where most men go. Gordon writes, in this poem, bodies are dispersed into a landscape of splendid melancholy populated by nameless dead. Call it Australia. Gordon's own body had a curious fate. In desperate circumstances, he shot himself near Brighton Beach in Melbourne, only to be re resurrected in a bust in Westminster Abbey in 1934 as National Poet of Australia. And these are just some um, texts of this poem, The Six Stock Rider, when it was first published, first in a magazine and then in a collection. And uh, the point of showing these is that he divided up the stanzas in different ways in these two versions. And so the editor in our book, Elizabeth Webby, had to decide which version 
is the one to use. So even very small and technical things start to matter um, as part of the material presentation of literary texts like this. The primary body in Australian literature is an Aboriginal body, hidden, violated, returning to haunt. Other bodies, like the dead stockman in this poem, stand in for those they've displaced with a deadly irony, since they also carry traces of their own displacement from old world to new. By contrast, a later Aboriginal poet, Jack Davis, finds in Claims to Land, quote, something remade and renewed in the face of negation. So there's a kind of um, dying and being reborn going on in this writing. Um, my colleague at the University of Western Sydney, Ivor Indic, um, has written about this and I quote him now, you don't have to struggle to hear this dark atavistic note as if it came with a weakened intensity from far away and a long time ago. It resounds through Australian literature. Iva is writing that um, in an essay on Kenneth Slessor, a 20th century poet, um, where he's exploring Slessor's Jewish ancestry in an essay that appeared in the first issue of the magazine Heat, um, which again was a kind of intervention into the literary culture at the time um, it appeared. And I'll quote Slessor now, a famous poem, South Country, from 1939, where we, where we see this process of um, birth from death. Slessor writes, even the dwindled hills are small and bare, as if rebellious, buried, pitiful, something below pushed up a knob of skull, feeling its way to air. So you'll see from what I've been saying that Australian literature serves many purposes in our society. Um, my purpose in speaking of the body like this is to suggest something that can be held in common, reshaped and passed on. And perhaps that is what this, this book is. I hope so. Um, not only for students, but for everyone. And not only for Australians, but for everyone. Is that Anza Halka there? Again, an image that um, reflects the reinterpretation, the reconfiguration of a past icon for a present context. And another one of those, um, Guanwei, an artist Jean mentioned, um, with his version of Australian history. So a contemporary Chinese-Australian reconfiguring <coughs> elements of the past. In this transnational context, individual works and the whole body of Australian literature enter new relations and new zones of meaning. The sense of a crisis that I began um, talking about has 
continued. And one of the um, upshots of that has been the debate about a national English curriculum, um, which you've probably read about, and if you have anything to do with secondary teaching, um, you'll be watching. There's a framing document for that national English curriculum. And I'll just quote some parts of it, because it makes very interesting, indeed, um, quite inspiring reading. It says, the English curriculum has particular responsibility for quality learning in language, literature and literacy, with part of its goal being to encourage openness to diversity and the imagination. Considering the place of literature and Australian literature, it points to responsibility for the English language and literary traditions of Australia in their historical context as they currently stand and in their ongoing relevance to this country. Knowledge of these matters should form part of what young Australians know about English and about being Australian. It goes on. Australia's evolving ethnic composition and the increasing national importance placed on our geographic location in the Asia-Pacific region brings with it a variety of cultural, social and ethical interests and responsibilities, including the inscriptional and narrative traditions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And the entitlement of all young Australians to develop an awareness of the literary traditions and expressions of other nations in the Asia-Pacific region. It's broad language. It leaves a lot of room open for interpretation. And it's still too early to say how this national English curriculum will unfold. Um, in fact, you're a very uh, a delightful audience to talk to, but I'm going on Saturday to Hobart to the National Conference of English Teachers, a thousand of them, um, <laughs> to talk about this, which is a, a, quite a scary prospect, actually. Um, but I do believe that this national English curriculum offers a great opportunity more generally to rethink the way Australian literature exists for us um, and to see the relationship of particularly young Australians with this literature as one of active participation and ownership with the body of Australian literature um, in their hands for them to do with it what they want to. More broadly, this discussion of a national curriculum includes the encouragement of creative practice at all levels of education. Music, the visual arts, the performing arts, as well as creative expression through writing. And even more broadly, that emphasis on artistic creativity is seen as linking to creativity across all areas, um, including research and development and enterprise in science and industry. It's part of a current national agenda. What that means is that tomorrow's English teacher will be teaching creativity, teaching how tomorrow's writers can extend that body of Australian literature, making it theirs in the process. The experience begins at school for all of us in the hands of good 
and well-supported teachers working with good material. And it continues then for the rest of our lives. The time feels right for some sort of change, um, I think. I'll skip over those um, take-home points and leave you with Fiona Foley's photograph of Cronulla, um, Nulla forever. Um, and just add that um, a few weeks ago, I was out there with the hordes of people inspecting first home buyer units in the eastern suburbs. And um, I was looking at one in Maroubra. And you know how books are put out in these places to make the, um, the property more attractive? <laughs> the book that was put by the bed in this Maroubra apartment was Patrick White's novel, Riders in the Chariot. <laughs> A very difficult text, but I guess a leading indicator in this surfside world. I hope it is, and I hope we can join those riders in the chariot and ride this wave. So I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for listening.